Hello, friends. I am Kent Lapp, and welcome to this episode of the KLP, where we give you long-form, in-person conversations that explore and inform. Today, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Jonathan K. Dodson. Jonathan is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, which he started with his wife, Robbie, and a small group of people. They have three wonderful children. He is the founder of GospelCenterDiscipleship.com, which produces resources to help make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus. He is the author of a number of books, including Here in the Spirit, Knowing the Spirit Who Creates, Sustains, and Transforms Everything, The Unbelievable Gospel, Say Something Worth Believing, and Gospel Center Discipleship. Just about any week, you can catch Jonathan listening to M. Ward, watching Sci-Fi, and or going for walks. A group of us are actually reading one of Jonathan's latest books, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. And it's been really great so far. I really appreciate my conversation with Jonathan. Be sure to check out, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already. And with that, I give you my conversation with Jonathan K. Dodson. Please enjoy. Jonathan Dodson, welcome to the podcast. Hey, pleasure thanks, to have you on. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were just talking about. You said flat track, co- flat track coffee. Yep. And is it in East Austin? In East Austin. Okay, absolutely. nice. Off of Cesar Chavez. Yeah. Well, today's the today they have that. For whatever reason, I was telling these guys, I take some kind of a like a supplement for your brain, basically, and <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. I ran out a couple of weeks ago, but it's built. It's it's made by a company here in Austin. Yesterday morning, I had some extra time. So I ran down there and just got some at their little, little small little retail store. You know, you can just walk in. Yeah. And uh, man, I could not go to sleep last night. <laughs> I was up till three a.m. I kid oh, you no. not. I mean, it doesn't help that I'm sleeping in a. It's the same bed as my ten-year-old son. I don't. I don't <laughs> love that either. I like to have my space. You yeah. know. And um, one of the ben- I didn't tell you, tell these guys. One of the benefits was though at like two forty-five a.m. Lincoln, you met Lincoln, the ten-year-old. He kind of jumped up in his bed. He was muttering. He sounded like he was saying like a mix between like Ava or Ariel or something. Like I couldn't tell what he was saying. And he like got on his hands and knees. And then he like crouched up and was like muttering like something was going on. I was like, hey, man, you all right? He's like, yeah. Hey, what's going on? I was like, man, you're talking your sleep. He's like, oh, it was? Like, I said, yeah. He's like, yeah. And um, I was like, what, did you have a dream or something? He's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a dream. I was meeting Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> 2.45 in the morning. I mean, usually I'd be fast asleep, but I was up last night. But I'm ready to go if you are. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, I'm not ready to throw a punch. Uh, you know, Justin Bieber, if he walks through the door, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I am totally fine with it as well. Um, all right, so your name, Jonathan K. Dodson. So I reached out to you because we were here in Austin, and I was looking for pastors to have on the podcast. I, as it turns out, your name is super familiar to me. Is this because I've read some of your books possibly already and didn't even make the connection? Maybe. Like my first book was probably my best-selling book that a lot of people have read. It's called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. I feel like I've read that. So yeah, yeah that might be might be a why. while ago. When was that yeah, book written? No, we're coming up on the ten-year anniversary. So oh wow, yeah, okay. We're, we're actually reissuing that book as expanded and revised. That's coming out in the spring of twenty twenty-two. Okay, and. Um, yeah. So that yes. Yeah, so that's been around ten years. I'm pretty sure I have read. I've I've read that book, and because I can picture seeing it on the bookshelf where it's at, at back home. And then um, I just feel like it's yeah. I've seen your name a lot. Maybe you've written multiple books. That's probably where I've seen your name. Maybe. I hope hope it was a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> um, another interesting fact I noticed: you have one kidney. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah, you, you, what you, led to that? You dug for that because that's not bit. like yeah. I don't fly the flag for that, but 
Yeah, so my aunt uh, just was pull in, that a little. Just pull the base of that mic a little closer. Okay, to you. my there, aunt there was in um, dual renal failure. Um, she was, you know, doing, you know, every night waking up at two a.m. and changing the bags out to, you know, process her her um, her blood. You know, so your kidney filters your blood and purifies it. And if you don't, if your kidneys start failing, then you have to have an external device and uh, pe- people are familiar with dialysis. So you use that external t- device to filter your blood and purify. And so, um, but it's a very painful, uh, process. There's a lot of infections that involve when you lose the a dialysis kidney. is painful. Yeah. Is yeah. Really? Dialysis. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, it, it, it also shortens your lifespan. So if your if your kidney's not working, that external device is it's, you know, it, it helps keeps you alive, but it's, mm. it shortens your lifespan. Um, and then it's very difficult to travel. Um, just your whole quality of life plummets. So I found out that my uh, my aunt, my aunt was um, facing this. I didn't know it, and and I was talking to my dad, and he said he was thinking about he was going to be tested to see if he could be a donor. And then he found out, you know, there's a levels of of matching that have to happen. There's mm-hmm. blood match. Uh, there's um, <clears throat> you know donor type. Uh, there's the health of the kidney. Um, a variety of things, and so uh, he wasn't going to be able to to be a match. And um, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people a year that don't don't get matched. And uh, you know, there's a mortality rate associated with this. So I, I was kind of hit between the eyes. I turned to my wife and said, "Man, I mean, I knew I was O positive, which is universal donor uh, in terms of blood." And so I talked to her about it, and she's like, "Yeah, I think you know, if you want to do it, you should do it." And uh, we thought about it. We thought about, you know, I mean, Jesus gave us his life. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got every reason to give a kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went through the process and bit off way more than I realized. It's a pretty arduous process just to get to the surgery. Mm. Uh, so With diet and stuff like that? Because kidneys process food and drink, right? Yeah. So it, it, yeah. Um, w- w- one of the things I had to do is a, a test where you do it, get a 24-hour urine sample. Mm-hmm. So I would have to go to work with this orange cooler that I would put my urine in and have to keep the urine. So I'm, I'm carrying this cooler to work no and then way. I'm going to the bathroom and other people, other offices use the same bathroom. They're like, what's this guy doing carrying this, you know, orange cooler <laughs> right. into the, the bathroom? What's going on in there? You know, like <laughs> they probably thought you were swapping out pee samples for a drug test or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the real kicker is like, I had to, that test failed numerous times because the urine sample got contaminated. So I ended up doing it like five times. No way. Yeah, it was crazy. And then you get lots of blood drawn. You had to go to the hospital and get lots of, I got stuck so many times and just, you know, driving to Dallas and all that. So, but totally worth it. You know, uh, this, the surgery was very successful in terms of the kidney getting transplanted, being healthy, um, and giving my my aunt new life. Mm-hmm. They say that the donor after you after the surgery, the donor looks like they're dying, and the recipient looks like they're living. So that like there's literally an organ been taken from the donor, and an organ has been given mm-hmm. to the recipient. And so, um, it was it was a tough recovery too. Mm. So successful surgery. Um, I'm pleased to say that. My aunt has a kidney that's working, that's functioning. She's been able to go see her grandchildren. She's been able to travel. Um, uh, she doesn't have to deal with all of that other stuff, you know, with dialysis, which is great. So grateful to see life in her body mm-hmm. that she didn't have. And um, But the God, God was teaching me about, 
you know, sacrifice and service. And I um, woke up and, man, they cut through your abdominals. So there's there are three scars that I have. Well, one was in the pelvic area where they slipped the organ out. Okay. okay. And then there's a couple puncture wounds to put a scope in. Separate. And then, yep. And then to put the little uh, nano device to cut cut away all of the fat and to clip the organ and put it into a little bag and then slip that out, that, that, uh, that pelvic incision to slip it out there. So it's, it's wow. really cool surgery. Like I watched it before I had it done. I was just mind, mind On blowing. YouTube or something? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Uh, it's fascinating, you know, what, what doctors can do today. That is true. So, um, but I woke up and like, I couldn't, I had a catheter. Like I couldn't use the bathroom by myself. I couldn't walk because all of those muscles were sliced up. God, and um, so like I had to have help to to get up when I got up. And then like I couldn't really walk. So I had a like IV stand and I'm shuffling around the nurse's station trying to walk because they want you to start rebuilding that muscle. And in the middle of the night, I would feel very lonely. There's no one there to help me. Um, I, I would feel like, man, am I ever going to really back be back to full health, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, you got you can you know if you've ever had insomnia you can have really dark thoughts um, and suffering we all, we always have dark thoughts and so there's no one awake there's no one in the room and um, I would wake up and, and have this these kind of dark feelings and dark hmm. thoughts and and what really helped me was Psalm 139. There's a phrase in there uh, where David says, "When I awake, you are there," mm-hmm. and we know that from that psalm that. That he also says, you know, if I ascend to the heights of heaven, if I uh, take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, if I make my bed in Sheol, there you will be with me. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a brush with Mm. death. And and here we have the omnipresent spirit saying, no matter where. And so when I woke, he was there. Yeah, man. And it was a real comfort. Yeah, that is a comfort in... Super encouraging for me to hear because I have dark thoughts from time to time. And in a time of a recent time of very dark thoughts, my pastor, uh, TJ Timms, I was I was on the phone with him and he, you know, just pointed out Psalm 139.5. You know, you are before me and behind me. You hem me in. Your hand is on me. And so I've been reading Psalm 139 every day, man, hmm. just letting it wash over me. Hmm. It's been a huge encouragement. Hmm. I mean, for and I just think for, for those going through the dark season or having dark thoughts or suffering, man, Psalm 139 is like gold mine. Yeah. So how long ago was this? Um, five years ago. Okay. Like that. So somewhat recently. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? I'm 46. 46. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were like, you were, you know, low 40s when this happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what was the calculation on your end? I mean, there's got to be some risk, right? Not just for the surgery. I would think the actual surgery of removing kidney, that's probably the easy part. But 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, there's got to be some detriment to your life, right? Well, or health. Anytime you go under the knife, you got to sign papers that, you know, uh, basically say, if you die, it's not their fault, right? So you, you got to stare that one in the eye. Uh, I remember one moment sitting with a social worker who said to me, now, if the surgery fails, how will you respond? Well, I hadn't even conceived of it not 
being successful. I mean, we're, we're in modern medicine. We're in right. America. Like, yep. And, you know, we did all these tests. You know, you tell me there's a possibility of it failing. It was like yeah. I hadn't even thought it even entered my mind. Yep. And that was a really, uh, you know, humbling moment to go, so am I doing this for results, you know, or am I doing this for love mm. and trusting God with the results, which is like a great question every day you wake up. Uh, so that was good. That was, uh, you know, that, so, so there were some emotional kind of calculations to answer your question. There was some, um, uh, there's been some adjustments to my diet. So sodium is not good since you have one kidney. One of the cool things though, is the kidney compensates. So now that I have one, it is enlarged and, uh, it, it, it doesn't go to, you know, 200% capacity to make up entirely for the other kidney, but it does cr- enlarge and it is able to process more volume. No kidding. Yes. Yes. And I could tell that in my body because um, I have to go to the bathroom all the time and I have to mm-hmm. drink water all the time. So I drink okay. more water than I ever have. I go to the bathroom more than I ever have. Okay. But Hey, I mean, those are small, small little sacrifices. It sounds like those are, th- I mean, those are things that I do already. And I drink <laughs> two kidneys. <laughs> I do drink a ton of water and I go to the bathroom a lot. Yeah. Um, but why do you drink? Do you drink so much water because you feel like you feel your body asking you to, or just because you know it's so healthy for your one kidney? Uh, I guess kind of both. I mean, I don't have the double the capacity to hold water that I had before. Mm. Oh, okay. So I I need to. I, I'm pro. So there's less of a reservoir of water being processed in two kidneys. I see. So I'm drinking more to to work that single mm. kidney, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I also just feel it. I get dehydrated very easily. So more than ever after preaching, um, after the kind of hour, 30 minutes, hour of kind of boost that I typically have to engage with people and counsel and pray, I get home and I'm, I kind of crash, you know, so because I get so dehydrated. Um, in a controlled environments, like I work out at the Y, I'm, I can do okay. But if I play tennis in 90 degree weather, uh, you know, I'll go and vomit afterwards and be done for three, three hours. So, oh, wow. yeah. So the, the, the body's super sensitive to dehydration. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a long-term health, uh, risk here? Uh, it, as long as I'm eat fairly well, you know, and drink lots of water and, you know, uh, I, I should be fine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there are, there are NBA athletes who have donated kidneys and they're back on the court, you know, playing really? full court basketball and, yeah, I'm, of course they're in way better shape than I am. But mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, you can live you can live a long life. Yeah, but you wound up uh, you wound up in the hospital at some point. This was on your Instagram, I think I saw that. Where after after preaching, right? You were so dehydrated or something. You actually wound up in the hospital. Do I have this right? This might have been a while ago. I don't I don't remember that. Okay. Well, maybe it was another Jonathan Dodson. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you would remember. I mean, it, recently it I had to go to the so. ER. Um, was it that maybe? I, I was super dehydrated. Yeah. That's, and we that's thought it might of, be COVID because some okay. of the symptoms were like COVID and there was, you know. Yeah. So I, I ended up getting the test and they jammed it up in my brain and all that good stuff. And I came out fine. I was, didn't have COVID. I was just super dehydrated. And Okay. Yeah. So something like that was likely related to the fact that you have one kidney now. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Wow. But man, it's yep. not a big deal. It's not a big deal. You know, it, it, honestly, the the benefits of this, not only to my aunt, but to to other people have far outweighed the cost. So I get in an Uber car and I'm talking to somebody, you know, because I'm back in Dallas for a checkup or whatever. And I, I'm 
explain to them, you know, what are you doing? What are you here? Well, I was like, oh, I'm here. You know, I was, you know, uh, gave my kidney and, and got to get checked. You gave your kidney? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and I just tell the story and then I just, you know, just say like, um, you know, I'm a Christian and my God gave his life for me. And so I feel like, I mean, I can spare a kidney, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, and then the, the Uber driver starts crying. Oh, really? Like, or the guy I used to work out with a Y, I told, I was gone for, you know, four months. I got back and he's like, man, I really missed you. I miss seeing you too. Where you been? Uh, you know, donated my kidneys. He starts, starts crying right there. Like, you know, it's just like, I don't, God has used it to, to, to give, to minister life and the gospel of grace mm-hmm. and the, you know, sacrificial love of Jesus to others in ways that I would have never imagined. Yeah. So it's like all these things, not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's such great perspective. And, and it's not shocking that it touches these people. What's so great about that is it's actually, you're actually living out your faith, you know, like your faith is, it's proven to be plausible because it's affecting your actions to the tune of giving a kidney to your aunt. Yeah. And seeing those examples in real life, it's always, it's impactful, you know, because you can believe whatever you want, but if it doesn't affect how you act, it's like, well, that's, it's, it doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah. I woke up uh, from the surgery and there was a friend of mine who's in our church uh, sitting in the corner. And uh, once I was lucid, I heard him say something like, that was the greatest sermon you ever preached. Mm-hmm. Just the that. act, you know? Absolutely. So yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to hear you're doing well, too. Yeah. I'm Did your wife push back on this decision? She was very supportive. Okay. She was like more convinced before than I was initially. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How do you crash after you preach? Like a Sunday afternoon? Like it seems to me like preaching would be just kind of like a, a high or like a burst of energy. I mean, it takes a lot, right? And mm-hmm. then after, do you get depressed? Do you feel like, you know, the you have the, the extra kind of physical thing with being dehydrated and worn out and those types of things. But mm-hmm. like, well, I know some pastors like will go into it like a depressed state, like yeah. Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. Do you experience that as well or no? You know, by the grace of God, I don't struggle with, you know, Sunday afternoon or Monday morning depression. Okay. Um, uh, and that is the grace of God. It's not because I'm special. Um, but I, you know, I, like any other person, when you do something for other people, you write a book, you play a song, uh, you, you create something that you invest, you, you invest yourself into something and you put it out there to serve, to bless, to whatever. Um, you're, you're genuinely interested in what other people think, you know. And with preaching, you're, yes, you're expositing God's word and you're telling people what God thinks about them and the world and everything, but you're also you're also explaining it through your own life. Mm-hmm. You're explaining it in your own way. Uh, you're trying to to bring these eternal truths right down into the middle of their lives. So you're 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 crafting something that hopefully, by the grace of God, it doesn't get stuck in the biblical world, but makes that you know that 180 degree turn all the way to the 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 contemporary world. And so I'm I I want to know. How did that? So it's there's a personal investment. It's the most important thing we could ever think about. And so I'm genuinely interested at a personal level, at a spiritual level, what you think. And so, unfortunately, there is this climate of let's talk about anything other than the sermon afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and while uh, you're still in church, 
Yeah. 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 And I, I get it. Maybe, you know, I gave a, I, I stood up and said, thus says the Lord. So maybe there's some intimidation there. You know, maybe there's uh, some conviction. Um, and so it may be difficult to, to come up and converse about that. But it's very interesting to me as a preacher um, that people will talk to you a lot about all kinds of things except for the thing that you both have been thinking about for 30 to 45 minutes together. That is a very interesting point. Very interesting point because it's so true. And if you think about other times you are with people at a conference or a seminar or something like that you if you're on a break and you're meeting let's just take a business seminar for example and it's at a the banquet hall of a hotel or whatever and you know you have a little bit of break and you meet someone usually you will talk about what was just talked about in Mm -hmm. that last session in that seminar what is it about church where after the sermon is it because the devil has is so good at having us compartmentalize everything. It's like, all right, you go to church, you listen to the sermon, that's done. Sermon's over, and now you meet your buddy afterwards and you talk about the football game that's coming up in an hour. Like, yep. what is it about church in particular in a sermon that is that is so easy, naturally, just to move past it and not just be like, well, what did you guys think? What did you think about that? You know? Yeah. I, I feel like that's very common. Yeah. I think there are a variety of reasons. You know, you, you don't want to put everyone into one box and say, this is the reason so-and-so didn't talk, talk about, you know, God's word today. Uh, they may be processing conviction. Um, there, there may be a sense of intimidation to approach a person who is in a place of spiritual authority. Uh, like, it, um, my words are going to be inadequate uh, to talk about what we just talked about because it's so deep. And I think related to that, and this is, would be a broader thing, I think our culture... And the church is part of the culture, uh, is pretty inarticulate about matters of the heart. Um, so we can talk a lot about tech and we can talk a lot about the arts and the things that we're into, external things, but it but in generally speaking, I think we have we, we live in a culture where um, it's easier to talk about things you do than who you are, or who God is. The, the, you know, and so I think there's a kind of inarticulateness about deep things in our society that, um, that have shaped us during the week so that when we step into a Sunday morning gathering, um, that doesn't disappear, you know. Um, uh, and there's, I think, you know, psychologists talk about recency bias. So if you're going to do an interview, um, you save your best, most impressive piece to um, impress the the, the empo- potential employer to last, because because the mm. last thing you say is going to have the most impressive okay. impact. In a similar way, people come into church gatherings often with a recency bias. The thing they're thinking about most is the thing that they were most recently impressed by, and unfortunately, often it's not the word of God. It's like this issue or that issue, this struggle or that struggle, and in part. That's really good. Let's bring the challenges of culture and the sufferings of life. Don't leave those at the door. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, like, Lord, just clear the obstacles, just clear all the distractions away. It's like, no, bring your distractions, bring your obstacles into the church, and let's see what God has to say about them. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, but, but I think there is a, um, 
the, the recency bias, it, you can be so preoccupied with that recent thing that, uh, that it, it just carries more weight. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you were thinking about the game before you got there. So what do you talk about after service? You think about the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was this kind of, you know, conflict on social media. So you talk about that. And um, the challenge for Christians is to include God in all of the things, the recent things or the unrecent things. Yeah, that is articulated extremely well. I'm not sure that I've heard it, what seems to me to be uh, communicated so true, like to that matter in particular, as well as you just did. I'm going to need to go back and listen to that. I think that's spot on. Like it, just, That just seems so true. Um, and by the way, it's not everyone in every church, right? I mean, I no. feel like there's... Some people in some churches do way better at this than than others, but yeah. I'm still challenged by that um, by that point. And can I it, add, it, just like if there's a church member or you know listening to this later, I don't want you to think I don't want you to be duty bound to talk to the pastor about the sermon afterwards, but I do want you to be freed to approach the preacher. With questions, with doubts, with um, I didn't understand this, you know, or even with I really appreciated X, Y, or Z. Uh, so, like, I don't, I don't want people to feel hear this and feel burdened. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're asking me questions as someone who preaches, and uh, I think it's a fair topic to to think about and consider. Why do I or why do I not uh, talk to either my friend or to the pastor about this? profound, it's the most important thing in my life, mm-hmm. and yet I'm not talking about it, and we have an environment in which we can. Mm-hmm. It's worth pondering. Do you like when people, do you think most pastors like when people come up to them after the sermon and thank them for the sermon or ask them a question or engage them in some way? I'm sure this depends on the pastors. Would there be some pastors that would just, they would welcome that, but they're sort of ready to go have a little bit of break, maybe prepare for the next service or whatever the case may be? Or do you feel like most pastors really do desire that engagement after the service? Well, you know, I can't speak to all pastors. I I think you should be church-facing when the sermon is done. This is your opportunity to shepherd people, you know. Um, God has spoken. Uh, their, Their hearts have been laid bare. This is a remarkable opportunity to get into the mess, the hopes, the dreams, the fears of people's lives. Like, you know, let's not move on. Like, this uh, this was a sacred moment. Yeah. God flexed, and people were moved. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. How can I help you? Where are you struggling? What are the doubts? What can we celebrate? What word stood out that we could, you know... Love rejoices in the truth. What can we rejoice? What truth can we rejoice in together? Yes. Uh, no. So I think you know, we've got to linger mm-hmm. and 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 shepherd and listen and pray. I mean, it's like you, you're praying that message. You're counseling that message into people's lives after that. I mean, it's such a rich opportunity for all of us. Yeah, it is, and it is such a sacred kind of thirty minutes, twenty minutes, an hour, whatever that whatever that kind of timeline is for different churches in different contexts with different services and those types of things. But that those moments after the service are sacred and there is an opportunity there because there is something sacred, special, powerful, uh, in particular about preaching. I mean, this is, 
I, I love seminars. I love to go to, I mean, I've been to a ton of business seminars, even some self-help stuff like secular stuff. I love it. I mm-hmm. like to go somewhere and engage for a couple of days and meet people and hear and learn. Like I'm sort of, I used to be kind of a junkie for that and I don't go to as much of it anymore, but I love that stuff. I've never, ever, even close, have been moved from point A to point B like I have many times in under preaching. Mm. And and there is something, I mean, if if there is a God and the Bible is true, then this would stand to reason, you mm. know, that preaching is a, it's, its own category. It doesn't get to be lumped in alongside other forms of communication and talks and seminars. Yes, it is communication. Yes, you are speaking um, and, and, and teaching sometimes, but there is something special about preaching that you are under kind of this this anointing of the Lord for these 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever it is, um, that has the ability to move people from point A to point B and do soul work in a way that you, it doesn't get done when you're just, generally, when you're just out talking with a buddy. or I mean, it can, right? The Lord can, can move at any time, but there's something special. There's something anointed about preaching. And so capitalizing on that opportunity of the Word settling into the hearts and minds and souls of the people in the congregation that is such a window of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think in preaching, um, there should be a disappearing act where the preacher disappears, and then there is an appearing act. The glory of the Lord appears. That doesn't happen in normal communication. Mm-hmm. In normal communication, you value what the person says, and you start to marvel at the speaker. Man, look how they said that. Look how they put that together. You know, these ideas are so... But we're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about God. Yes. You know? Yes. There's a person, there's another person in the room that has now suddenly appeared. Mm-hmm. And it is the most important, most glorious, most beautiful, most loving person in the world. Mm-hmm. It should be different. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're totally right. Um all right, so let's get a little bit of an overview, who you are, what you do, kind of how you got here, if you could if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. Um, so my mother's British. My dad is American. Um, they met in Bible school in the rolling green hills of the Lake District in England. Oh. My dad's best friend was supposed to go to Bible college at Cape and Ray Hall in uh, Lancaster in, in, the, in the Lake District. And he had to back out the last minute. And so he said, do you want to go? And so he ended up going. And there, lo and behold, was a beautiful secretary who loved the Lord. And they fell in love, but they didn't realize it. They spent a lot of time together. He came back before the internet and all that stuff. They both realized that they were in love with each other. My, my mother was a little bit beside herself because she'd ask God, don't let me fall in love with another man until it's, it's my husband. And she, she's like, this guy who I became friends with, I realize I'm in love with him. Mm-hmm. And he's across the ocean. <laughs> like, I can't communicate with him, you know? And my dad's over here going, man. I love this woman. The next day after that night of kind of honesty with God for my mother, a letter came in the mail, and it was a proposal from my father. No way. A marriage proposal? Yep. In the mail? In the mail. Via snail mail? Snail mail. A letter? Yes. They weren't even, quote unquote, dating? Not even dating. Wow. Oh, I respect that so much. So he, <laughs> is this in the '60s or the '70s or when is this? Yeah, this is uh, '70. Uh, okay. Yeah, '60. Uh, yes, early '70s. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I was born, you know, like 
15 months later after they got married. Okay. I was born in 74. So, but yeah, so that, so they met, fell in love. He flew over, of course, asked for the hand of marriage from her dad and, you know, they, they got married. So, uh, all, all that to say is I lived in England for a number of years and, um, you know, I was shaped by that, but I moved back here when I was seven. And uh, I remember we moved from the Rolling Green Hills of the Lake District to East Texas, the oldest town in Texas, Nacogdoches. <laughs> and I remember walking down the street, talking to a neighbor and not understanding a single word they said. <laughs> hey, are you doing going down there snoring? We're going to join your not young. I came back and told my parents, like, they're speaking a different language. Yeah. They're like, no, son, that's English. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> That's so funny. We run into, I've run into some of that in Nashville, but it's it's out in the country. Yeah. Like in and around the city, I've never been looked at weird to not have like a southern accent, but I have run into people that had such a thick southern accent that I can't really understand everything that they're saying. Yeah. Particularly if it's over the phone. Yeah. 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 No, that's... Anyway, so I've had a love for culture, uh, I think in part because of that kind of bicultural experience. We went back, you know, in uh, my... my aunt and uncles and cousins would come over and just being in touch with, you know, European culture from a young age. Uh, at seven, when we moved back, uh, someone was reading the Bible in my grandparents' house. We were staying with them, trying to kind of find our, find our feet as we moved back. And I remember them reading the Bible. I walk up to them, ask them some questions about the Bible, about who was in the Bible and, you know, and, uh, ended up stepping out on the back porch and talking to my dad, asking him these questions. And he explained the gospel to me. And I was, I was blown away that the God of the universe was interested in me. And so what happened on that day is that the love of the Father captivated my heart. Because I thought to myself, what do I have to contribute as a seven-year-old boy to the God of the universe? Mm -hmm. And it's like, nothing, really. He wants to contribute to you his love and belonging. So... That, you know, just the gospel of adoption just, you know, captivated my heart. And I had a great family, but I didn't have that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I came, became a Christian when I was seven and started reading missionary biographies like crazy, C.T. Studd, you know, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael. And this became kind of my childhood heroes. Were like seven, eight, nine years old you were reading this Yeah, stuff? yeah. Oh, wow. They were abridged biographies, you know, okay. for kids. Um, started meeting real missionaries, was like really excited about that. And then, so kind of had this missionary trajectory, uh, kind of developed, you know, at a early age. Um, fast forward, you know, I ended up studying cultural anthropology at university of North Texas with a view to, if I can understand cultures, how kinship systems works, you know, worldviews are assimilated and, and built, then I can better communicate the gospel. I'd done some work in different places in the world, you know, Costa Rica, you know, uh, Russia, you know, things like that. And then eventually went on, did some graduate school work and started leading teams to Southeast Asia. So the childhood dream was coming true. Mm. Um, I had gotten married in 2000 to my lovely wife, Robbie, uh, and we had moved to Minneapolis for a little bit. And then we were in Boston, this is where I was studying. And, um, she would stay home, and I would take the teams over to help church planters in Southeast Asia, northern Thailand, uh, Laos, Burma. This is missionary territory. This is like you know Buddhism everywhere, yeah. temples everywhere you look. Like this is the childhood dream coming true. And on the one hand, I enjoyed it. On the other hand, I did not like the cultures that I was in. I struggled with the food, the smells, everything. Mm. I was like, man, I can't. 
imagine living and dying here. And so one night I got on my knees, the Buddhist gong was going off at like three or 4 AM. The roosters were crowing. And I just said, Lord, you know, I don't like it here, but I'll bring my family here and we'll die here serving you if that's what you want. I got back up on, on the plane and started flying back to the States. My mentor, Steve Nafakis, who is an OMF missionary, he had started a language school in Lopuri in Thailand. What's OMF? Uh, Overseas Missions Fellowship. It was started oh, okay. by Hudson Taylor. Oh, okay. Before that, it was called China Inland Mission. Mm. Um, and uh, so just a, you know, a, a great mission agency to, to Asia. And so Steve's like a modern hero. Like he started languages schools. He's planted churches in leper colony. I mean, he's done all this stuff. And so I'm telling him about this night in my prayers. And he said to me, Jonathan, it's okay if you don't go. Um, I, in fact, I could see you, God using you in like a city. That might be a better place for your gifts. And so in that moment, God did a 180 and called me to look at America as a mission field. Oh, wow. What year is this roughly? Uh, this would have been probably, yeah, early 2000s. Okay. Okay. So soon after you got married? Should you yeah, married yeah. 2000? Okay. Probably three, three years after, three or four okay. years after. Any I... kids at this point or no? Um, no, not okay. yet. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that, that's a big part of my story because then I looked, fell into church planting. Like as a, what does it look like to be a missionary in America? So I started trying to look at America as a mission field. What are the beliefs? What are the values? What are the, you know, and, uh, you know, drawing on some of that cultural anthropology, drawing on some seminary training and began dreaming about planting a church in a, in a resistant area area. Mm. So missiologists in Europe talk about resistant peoples, the peoples that have heard a consistent preaching of the gospel and have rejected it, or we might say today, uh, post-Christian climates. So I thought, where, where are people, resistant people in America? You know, where, and so we were in Boston, so we kind of explored the idea of planting in Alston Brighton and talked to some friends, and it didn't really materialize. And uh, long story short, uh, I, was, I was an interim pastor. We had our first child, Owen, and uh, I was at a Korean-American Presbyterian church for a year preaching. I knew that was coming to an end, and so we had this church planting missionary dream, but we were also like, we got to feed Owen, and we got to like pay the bills, and yeah. so, so I started interviewing for jobs, and as a pastor, and I never thought of myself as a pastor, I thought of myself as a missionary, but it was still gospel work, it was still, you know, uh, good work for the kingdom, so, and I reluctantly came down to Austin. I thought, man, Austin, man, Texas is over church and religious. But I got this interview. I came down, and uh, long story short, I didn't get the job, but I got Austin on my heart. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And what year is this, roughly? Uh, this was 2006. Okay. All right. So um, I realized it was missionary territory. At the, the time, it was 85% unchurched, which was the number being thrown around which is pretty significant for Texas. You know, it's the hole in the Bible belt. It's the progressive city. It's, you know, um, and so there was, there was a lot to, to consider the complexity of the culture. Keep Austin weird was more of a thing then. it's kind of been almost decimated now, unfortunately, but it's kind of an anthropologist delight here. It's, there's a lot of, for Texas, there's a lot of subcultures mingling here. Oh, you know, goodness, yes. I mean, you think of Willie Nelson, he took two disparate cultures uh, you know, hippies and cowboys and put them together and created the hippie cowboy. There's still vestiges of that here. There's all kinds of great creative. It's such a wonderful city. 
And so uh, that was a delight to me. And then to see the, the raw need for the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then I saw artists, tech people, you know, intellectuals all hang out in coffee shops together, sometimes talking to each other. And I thought, man, if, if a coffee can bring those people to the gospel, can bring those people together and then they can use their cultural capital there to reconcile inequalities in the city and if they come to christ they can do spiritual reconciling you know so uh long story short we moved down here and you know um as we crossed the texas border my wife wept for joy because she's a texas bell and couldn't wait to get back to texas oh really yeah she's a native texan yeah yeah. she was raised in irving uh irving is north of here yeah, it's, it's Dallas is the, is the home of the, the Cowboy Stadium until they tore it down and built the new one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, she was, she was a big tech Cowboys fan and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. so she was all about moving to Austin. Yeah, yeah and, all about it. Okay. Apparently, she had been praying every day that we would go back while I was trying to take us to Asia. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there is something about Texas and I think Austin that if it gets in your blood, it's really hard to get out. What was it about Austin? Did you already describe what it was about Austin that kind of captured your heart and mind? Well, uh, there were there were a couple things. You I mean the the lostness, the mm-hmm. you know, um, as, as that missionary heart that God gave me. Like, man, people need Jesus in this city, like in volume. Um, and then there was the the cultural challenge uh, that was appealing to me of. I was reading Richard Florida at Shady Grove. Shady Grove was a kind of standby. It's closed now. It was kind of a standby kind of iconic place to eat because there was always live bands outside and then mediocre food inside. But it was a great because there's these pecan trees and live oaks that give shade, you know, to the area. And so people, you know, throw out your blankets, hang out, um, you know, eat, eat some food and hear great live music. And it's right, right downtown off of Barton Springs. I was there eating, and I was reading an article by Richard Florida, uh, public policy kind of semi-sociologist type, uh, wrote a book called The Rise of the Creative Class. And in it, he argued that the creative class is the super creative core of any city that has talent, technology, and is highly tolerant. So these three streams, talent, technology, and and highly tolerant, um, are found in the super creatives that build cities. So his city building philosophy was if you can attract the creatives, you can build the city. If you build the city, you build the economy. And then he had a little bit, didn't talk a lot about it, and he got critiqued by this later because it wasn't amplified enough. But he did did suggest that creatives could use their capital, their vocational, economic, cultural capital to reconcile social inequalities in the city. Because in, in all super creative cities, there's slums that grow up on the backside of them. So there, uh, you know, here in Austin, wealth creep uh, has moved to the west. So all the money's on the west of the city, and then the east side, uh, there's not as much money. Now that's there's gentrification happening, but the point is, is that creatives haven't used their capital enough to reconcile those inequalities. Mm. And I read that in this super cool, creative environment restaurant, and was aware of the need, and was like the gospel can reconcile people to Christ and send them as agents of reconciliation socially, spiritually, and culturally. And that ended up becoming part of our vision statement that, you know, City Life exists, City Life Church exists to renew cities socially, spiritually, and culturally with the gospel of Jesus. Mm, I love that. When you're coming here in 2006-ish, 
are you coming here to plant City Life Church, or are you coming here to be a pastor at another? You might have mentioned, but I, I think I missed it. No, I was. was we, were, we were coming to plant the church. You were. Yep. Okay. Okay. So if you could pick up there. So City Life was actually founded back in 06, 07-ish? We got here in 06, you know, settled in, uh, you know, started getting to know the city, other churches, the culture. We didn't have a public service until April of 2008, but we were doing kind of, you know, missionary work before building mm-hmm. a kind of core, missional core team, you know, and all of that. I see. Okay. And... Um, all right, so fast forward now. I'm sure you learned a ton through that whole experience. <laughs> um, and how are things now? Things things are good. Um, I mean, it's been a very hard year, like anybody else. 2020 is not the year we thought it would be, you know, in January when we were making our, you know, resolutions. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that our church has been fairly resilient um, even though we didn't start gathering on Sundays again in person until a month ago. Mm. And the reason... hmm? November? Yeah. Okay. And the reason for that, yes, it's God's grace, but it's God's grace working through what we call city groups. It's where we can be the church to one another and to the city. Missional communities is like the technical term. And those really are the organizing principle of our church. Sundays are not. Sundays are very important, um, and they're not. Uh, they're both important. But when you had Sundays taken away and it was all online, the city groups continued to meet online through Zoom calls and get creative on how to minister to one another. And so, I'm grateful that God's grace so worked in our church at early, early on to convince people that. Church is not just an event that you attend; it's it's a people that you live with, you know. And so, um, so I would say it's been very hard, but I'm also very grateful for the resilience of our church and continuing to pursue one another in these in these city groups where we are mm-hmm. trying to <laughs> be the church in a very unusual and difficult time. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, and every church kind of has their personality or kind of principles or values um i mean obviously the it's all built around the personal work of jesus christ and holy scripture but still like they the churches are different in kind of their their evidences of grace or kind of their outreach like could you tell us just a little bit about about your church and mm-hmm. kind of what your i don't know cultural angle is or you know a little bit of the personality of the church sure things the church does well it seems yeah um, well, community would be one of them. I think if you had asked someone, you know, what do you like about Sea Life Church? They'd say, I love the community because the, you know, it, there is community. These city groups, um, are significant places for people to grow, to be connected, to be discipled, you know, to do life together, you know, as we often say. So I think that's one thing that people would say. Um, we are committed to mission and so, um, the three core principles for Sea Life are gospel, community, and mission. Okay. And, you know, like any church, there are seasons in which your core principles, some will be more vibrant than others. And I think in this season, mission has been less vibrant. It's been more difficult to work out our mission while at home, you know, and so our mercy ministries have suffered 
they continued and people have pivoted to be creative in meeting needs, you know, that have been really neat, like people giving up their N95 masks when those were scarce, you know, uh, the church came together in a really neat way to create a benevolence fund that we have, you know, paid thousands of dollars for medical bills and helped people that are struggling. Um, you know, so there has been creativity in mission um, during this time, but it has been it has been hard for us to show God's mercy when we're not in in contact with people. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, evangelism, you know, has been less pronounced. Um, because of the lack of contact with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this season, mission has been less vibrant. Um, I think we've really leaned in on community despite the virtual challenges. And then I think the gospel is still going strong to compel that community. Um, so I'm grateful for that. You know, people w- would say that it's a thinking church. I think, you know, people would say, you know, you, you you're challenged to think deeply and well about what you believe, about the culture you live in, uh, about the Bible itself. And so um, that, I think, is true. I love that. I love that, particularly in Austin. Um, I mean, we were just—this might have been before the podcast started, but we were just saying we had a— uh, queer, uh, self-identified, queer, lesbian, uh, polyamorous, post-Mormon woman on the show last night. And she's very smart, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, as it turns out, like, we probably disagree on almost everything <laughs> religiously or spiritually, but then we agreed on a whole ton of stuff politically, actually. It mm-hmm. was a fascinating conversation. But my point is, she has a pretty good handle on what she believes. And... um and so I think there's a lot of those types of people in Austin. Yeah. So knowing what I kind of, here's what I think. I, I feel like, I don't know what these guys think, but I feel like as we go home to Nashville, it's, it's time to have an apologist on and just sort of wash us clean again. You know what I mean? <laughs> like give us the reasons for why there is a God. How do we know? Is the scripture true? Is it in there? Like those types of things, like give us, give us like, good answers to hard questions yet again, because there's a lot of people out and about, and this is true for Nashville and I mean, all all across the country too, but there's people that have, they know what they believe and it's not what we believe. So let's know what we believe and why we believe that to be true. So I I love your thinking church. Absolutely. I mean, early on we would say, don't check your brain at the door of the church. Come with your doubts, come with your questions, you know? So where is the church located? Is it- it's downtown. We uh, rent a facility, fine arts facilities called Ballet Austin. They have a studio. Um, they have a theater. Um, they have multiple rooms for that we use for the kids. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, we were in and out of bars for uh, probably seven years. And that was edgy and good for, mi- for missional traction. You know, only certain people are going to come to the bar the church in a bar. And what do you mean you were in and out of a bar? We rented bars on Sunday mornings. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And so we would, I don't think I've ever heard of this. Yeah. No, it was, you know, it was a, as thinking like a missionary, where are the people that we want to reach? Let's, let's get on their cultural turf where they are comfortable instead of our cultural turf where we're comfortable. Wow. Are these like, do you think that was born out of your education in, in cultural anthropology? Yeah, definitely. Like that decision? Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, th- that, again, thinking culturally, you know, how do we reduce the obstacles to the gospel? One way is to get on their, to, the missionary understands the culture, inhabits the culture, 
uh, learns the language, lives like the people. You know, this is true uh, of Hudson Taylor. He was cr- critiqued by his contemporary Christians because he started dressing. He, he adopted the hairstyle, you know, of the Chinese. And, but that made him more accessible to the Chinese to yes. communicate the gospel. Yes, yes. I think C.S. Lewis made a point in a book that I was reading recently. Or I might have been Francis Schaeffer, sorry. But the point was that there's no kind of religion that's more... Um, you don't have to change your cultural, <clears throat> kind of at secondary and tertiary, like cultural levels. You don't need to change that for Christianity. But you think about Mormonism, you do need to change those things. Another, uh, I think of Islam too, like you, you need mm-hmm. to dress different, you know, if that's your religion. Christianity, it's like it's very, um, I don't know, Transla- multicultural or something? It's translatable is the missiologist okay. uh, language. So it's, you know, uh, Laman Sané, an African missiologist, says the gospel is infinitely translatable. It translates into cultures and it indigenizes, and it takes on another missiologist, Kwame Beriadko, said the gospel is a beggar that seeks food and shelter and clothing in every culture that it goes to. It's not that it's impoverished spiritually, but it's inhabiting the culture and taking on the clothing of the culture. Yeah, say that quote again, please. Um, the, 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 The gospel is a beggar that's seeking food, shelter, and clothing in every culture that it that enters into. Whoa. Well, yeah. that's very profound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so, spot on. Yeah, and so with Islam, it's uh, everything is uh, monolithic. There's there's o- only Arabic is the, you know, it's not supposed to translate the Quran. It's supposed to be in Arabic. Well, the, the, the Bible is translated in thousands of languages. Mm-hmm. There's this indigenizing principle. Uh, in in Christianity itself, that is reflected in the incarnation, that that God Himself indigenized. He took, He became a particular man in a particular time, spoke a particular language, Jewish. You know, th- this is part and parcel of the gospel. Mm-hmm. It inhabits the cultures that it enters into. It also challenges them and renews them. But yeah, so there's a big difference in 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 the Christianity and other religions. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you for bringing this book. Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes, written and released in 2020. So that's, very recent. That's my pandemic book. <laughs> yeah, I love this. Okay, so um, unfortunately, I haven't read it yet. Sorry about that. No um, problem. I didn't know until more recently that I was going to have you on the podcast. But thank you for this book. I really appreciate it. Um, okay, what's the book about? The book is about you wake up to a crisis every day. You check your phone, and there's another political crisis there's a sex scandal, there's an economic crisis. We wake up to crises every single day. If you're scrolling through and you saw breaking news, global moral crisis, you just keep scrolling. And yet underneath most major crises is a significant moral crisis. Under a financial crisis, there's greed. Under a sex scandal, there's lust. Under a political crisis, there's a thirst for power. So what I'm trying to do in this book is recognize the proliferating crises that we are encountering every day and ask ask the reader, if you care about those, then I want to ask you to turn the finger and look inside and recognize the seeds of every one of those crises exist also in you. Lust, power, greed, check, check, check. Who doesn't have those? So one way to address what seems like an insurmountable number of crises is to address the seeds of the crises in yourself. Mm. 
Um, <clears throat> and I think there are particular, there's a particular way to do that. It's, the, it's there's a loss of virtue. Um, there's a, we're inarticulate about the inner life. Uh, and yet this is a time in which we need to be, you know, affluent uh, about matters of the heart because the seeds of every crisis exist in us. So you got to look around and go, who makes us articulate about the inner life? Who has a vision of moral, uh, of moral goodness that we could, you know, that we could see real change happen uh, if we embraced it? And this is, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the most famous sermon in all the world. Um, some people have said it, you know, it, it is, um, even Richard Dawkins commended it. And, you know, was no friend of Christianity said it had a moral vision that was way ahead of its time. Um, you know, most of the world is familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It is a coherent, fruitful moral vision for human flourishing. And we're in desperate need of that. So w what I've tried to do is look at secular Beatitudes, secular forces that actually stimulate the seeds of the crisis in us, and lay them next to Jesus' Beatitudes and vision for moral flourishing. So what does it look like to be poor in spirit in the age of a big me? Uh, what does it look like to, to mourn in an age of distraction? So I'm trying to uh, listen seriously to some of the secular perspectives and the zeitgeist, the things that are influencing us every day, and lay those next to Jesus' vision for moral flourishing and spiritual flourishing and see where do they connect and where, do they, where, where are their friction points mm. in order for us to move into a place of true flourishing. Oh, man, such a big and timely and helpful subject matter. Um, Written before I, I knew there was a pandemic. Coming. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm assuming I'm not telling you anything new. Like, you wrote the book, you know that. But my goodness, I'm just thinking of, like, some of the conversations we've had recently on this podcast, and, mm -hmm. even back in Nashville. And I guess, I don't know, maybe even where I'm at kind of personally and with, with what's going on this summer. I mean, this is... This is a book I can't wait to read. What do you mean about secular beatitudes, and what what is a beatitude? Yeah, beatitude is kind of a religious word, but it's it it comes from the Latin beatitudo, uh, which means blessing. You you could translate uh, the Greek word. Um, you know, uh, it, it comes from bl from blessing. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So the the Greek word makurios means to be happy to 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 be joyful to to flourish, so Jonathan Pennington in his really helpful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says, flourished are the you know so it's a oh, it's a robust oh, wow. kind of thing. Is that a is that a an acceptable or an accurate interpretation of the Beatitudes instead of blessed are is flourished are? Yeah, I mean it's a little awkward in in kind of the. The, you know the the English language, but the blessing is is a is the favor of God that in, that influences all of life. It's not just in a spiritual compartment; it bleeds over into everything. And if you look at the Beatitudes, that's true. Uh, peacemakers, it touches your relationships. Uh, spiritual contentment, uh, poor in spirit. You know, um, it, 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 so it, it touches you know spiritual contentment. It touches relationships. You know. Um, uh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. It touches the morality of your life, you know, uh, of society. And in fact, I think all of these are meant to not only bring about personal flourishing, but social flourishing. If people really live this 
which is a tall task. Poor in spirit, you know, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, suffering, peacemakers. If you live this way, your life will change and other people's lives will change for the good. Yes. So, wow. Well, this, uh, I mean, we've tried often to kind of define like the podcast and what we're trying to do here. And like, finally, I think we've kind of settled on belief, build and enjoy. And like how I would define that is belief drives action, action drives change and change drives like a better fullness of life. Basically, that's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast is have conversations around mm. all of that. That's great. Now, sometimes um, change doesn't um, lead to, or like sometimes it leads to a, a less fullness of life, right? It can change, can go in the wrong direction too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so this, I think I had never heard of in interpretation of blessed are the poor in spirit being flourished are the poor in spirit. And yes, like human flourishing, it is sort of this, it's a word you don't hear a ton and it, it's not like a, you don't really talk that way that much. Although I feel like you're hearing more of it now, but for whatever reason, when you say flourished are in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, that somehow makes more sense at a practical level to me. Because blessed are, there's like, well, what does it mean to be blessed? You know, like I, I've kind of always had that, well, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know it's, it just seems like it, it. there's some more defining to be had there. But flourished are, mm-hmm. if that's an acceptable or an accurate interpretation, man... I feel like, at least for me, that's bringing things to kind of a whole new level of clarity. Like, it's bringing it home. It's making it more personable in a way that I'm not sure that it's been before. Mm. Well, yeah, blessing is one of those religious words. You're not quite sure what it means. That's right, yeah. Even when you're like, God bless you, or, you know, I play God bless you. You know, David Pallison, the counselor, says, don't just say pray for God's blessing. What blessing do you want for that person? And pray that. Yeah. You know, so that there, there is this kind of amorphous kind of vaporous sense of the way we use the word today but the the way it's intended by Jesus I think is is very robust it's very practical it's getting to spiritual flourishing it's getting to moral flourishing it's getting relational flourishing it's all right there in the beatitudes mm-hmm. okay so back to what what's a secular beatitude uh it's just a term i coined to convey that there are little propositions or values that we live by or are influenced by that are rooted in secular thinking instead of biblical thinking. Mm. So, um, the, so the first beatitude is uh, the poor in spirit in the age of a big me. So th- this is shorthand, big me. You know, uh, that's a phrase coined by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, in the, his book, um, the uh, the um, his first book on virtue. He has two. Anyway. Um, so the big me is a, you know, we live in an in a age of a big me. It's like, you know, you have your own platform, you have your own, you know, you have your own, you have your own curated life. Yes. You know, you can curate your music taste, you can curate your vocation. If you don't like your vocation, you change it. We're changing jobs more than ever in this society. Uh, we're changing cities, we're changing houses, we're changing, you know, we are curating life around the self. Charles, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, talks about, the, the, the golden inner statue that the modern person carries around inside of them, that, that we feed, we bow down to, we adore, we curate for that golden inner statue. Um, so if you're surrounded by technology, news, entertainment, um, 
a car that you can customize when you get in. You can customize the temperature. You can customize the seat uh, height. You know, you can customize lots of things in your life. It's very hard then in that kind of environment to say, I want to be poor in spirit. I want to be humble. I want to be meek. Because everything around you is saying, it's all about you. Mm-hmm. You do you. You be you. It's in the parlance. So uh, a secular beatitude would be that. You do you. Mm-hmm. You be you. It's all about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, then Jesus says, <laughs> the people who flourish are the people who are poor in spirit. I mean, talk about the opposite. So then you have to get into what does poor in spirit mean? And poor in spirit, you know, I think it has two main meanings. Luke says, blessed are the poor. So Jesus gave this sermon more than once, and he doesn't have the in spirit phrase. So I think there is a sense in which a person who is poor in spirit is in touch with the economically downtrodden, that they have a heart for those uh, that are uh, marginalized in society, But it's not just that. It's not just compassion for the poor because he has the in-spirit phrase. Mm -hmm. So there's a a spiritual nature to this kind of quality or virtue. There's a compassion for for the marginalized, for the poor, but then there's a kind of spiritual poverty. Uh, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a quality that you cannot come up with on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a kind of, when you get in front of God, it's like, I have nothing to contribute to you. Um, I am, I, you know, John the Baptist, may I decrease and may you increase. I saw recently a commentary about Carl Lentz's approach and other celebrity pastors' approach kind of being, May I increase so you can increase. That's the big me. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, no, it's a little me. And here's, it's a good thing. It's a satisfying thing. It's like when you, uh, when you take in 16,000 foot peaks in Colorado, you look at those Rockies, you have a sense of your finitude and your smallness. Yes. And you are humbled, so right? right? Yep. But you are not crushed. You are not like, I am the scum of the earth. You are exhilarated. You're lifted up. In a similar way, when we get close to something that's truly great, that's transcendent, that's God himself, we are so humbled. Mm. And because of Jesus Christ, we are also lifted up. Yeah, We're thrilled. Mm -hmm. And so that's how spiritual poverty or poor in spirit comes about, is by getting something around something that's greater and more gracious than you. Mm-hmm. But if you're feeding the big me, you're not going to slow down to do that. Yes. And it's the gateway drug into all the other beatitudes, into all the other virtues. All, all character and holiness grows in the soil of humility. So this is like, this is like step number one. <laughs> I'm like, I'm blowing it if I'm not next to God, mm. you know? So you see the poor in spirit in this this humility as being that important. It is the gateway into the other uh, um, blessings or... um, Beatitudes. Yeah, but what was the flourishing? Yeah. Into the other areas of flourishing that that the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount prescribes for us. You see humility as the gateway into the rest. It's that important. It's that important. Wow. Here's an example. Like, um, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you 
if we aren't mourning from a place of humility, then we will stand over God and criticize him for the suffering in our lives. We will, we will be the big me, we'll be proud, and we'll get distant from God, and we'll, we won't trust God in our suffering. Or say, say that one more time. If we don't mourn from a place of humility, is that what you said? Yeah, if we don't mourn from okay. a place of humility, mm. we, we stand over our suffering, and we stand over God, and we criticize him, and we're angry at him, and there's a place for anger and suffering. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying is like, if there's not humility, we throw God under the bus when it, when it comes to suffering. Or... We um, we get so crushed by it uh, that that it becomes we become victims and our identity in suffering is woe is me I'm a victim look what happened to me and so our identity becomes the suffering. I, I was talking to a pastor who was struggling to pastor a couple who had uh, had a significant loss and it had been a year into their grief, and he said you know I eventually you know, the grief was just still hanging on in such a profound way. It was just defining them. And he said this, it was like a purse that they carried around with them. Now, I've suffered and I counsel people suffering, but there is a sense in which your suffering can become you. You become the victim. And Jesus is offering us so much more. You know, he redeems suffering. He, suffering is not an, uh, it's not an inconvenience, an instrument of grace to draw us close to him. So if you're proud, you're going to stand over suffering with big pride or you're going to su- you're going to kind of diminish underneath it in weak pride. I'm a mm. victim. So humility influences even the way that we suffer. Yes. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And true comfort comes from a person who humbly gets close to a God in the midst of suffering that maybe you don't understand all the reasons but you know he's trustworthy, and you know he works it all together for good. And a humble person trusts when it even doesn't look like there's a good reason to trust. This is a big deal. <laughs> okay. Now, asking for a friend, if you, if you find that if this friend has found that they have sometimes lorded above God in suffering or become the victim of suffering, um, how, do you, how do you get back to humility? How do you become humble? How do you work towards that? Yeah. My friend is me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all do it. You're not alone. I think we need to go for a walk, shut off all the technology, close up all the books, put the work to a side, and talk to God out loud. And go to, you may need to go to a beautiful place that reminds you of God. Um, But, you know, begin to get close to something that's bigger, that's greater, and more gracious than you. Because what's happened is your suffering has become bigger than God. It's become the God. And it's ruling your emotions. It's ruling your beliefs. It's ruling how you view Him. It's become a dark cloud that's come over you, and it's blocking the greatness and grace of God in your life. And the only way to part that cloud is to get away from all of it and to talk to Him frankly openly, you know, to bring the doubts, fears, accusations, you know, nothing is going to shock him. Mm-hmm. He loves you no matter what you say. And so I think the first step is to get alone with him, to clear the, the noise away and to talk to him. And I think talking to God out loud is very powerful because you're not, there aren't other thoughts that interrupt you. So when you're praying silently, you can kind of roam about in your own mind, in your own reason, 
and you, it's, it's hard. But like when you and I are talking right now, I am not talking about other things. I'm not thinking yes. about other things. Yeah. And it's similar when you talk to God out loud, it's like, I'm getting real. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my focus on him and I'm going to listen to him and I'm going to talk to him. And you're not, all these other voices are interrupting the communion that you're having with him. And uh, I, I, find, I find it helpful to walk and, and do that personally. Um, so I think that would just be the first, you know, step. Mm-hmm. Spot on. Um, very helpful, by the way. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, back to poor in spirit in 2020, in this day and age, and the big me culture that exists. Like, is it is it possible? Like, does that... Does God's word still hold true in our day and age? Can we still be poor in spirit and be successful? Depends what what you how you define success. Um, David Brooks in that same book, The Road to Character, talks about two different atoms. He's borrowing from a Jewish theologian, Adam one and Adam two. Adam one lives for resume virtues. It's what you put on your resume to impress people. You conquer, you achieve, you have accomplished this, I do that. Their motto is success. That's their life motto. Adam two is prone to service, is prone to pray for others, is prone to invest in others. They're not kind of self-occupied. They live for eulogy virtues. What's a eulogy virtue? It's the things you want people to say about you when you're dead. The funny thing is we all live for resume virtues when we say what we want people to recognize in our life when we die is eulogy virtues. Mm -hmm. And I would go a step further than David Brooks and I would say live for the cardinal virtues, faith, hope, love. Mm. So what, what is success? I think it's possible to have success and be a kind of Adam two person to have character, but you can't fully commit to Adam one and Adam two. They're not fully reconcilable because the trajectory of Adam one is personal achievement, conquering. It's your name. Adam two, it's Jesus name. It's Jesus glory. It's Jesus kingdom. It's not your kingdom. And so there may be material success, there may be career success, but at the end of the day, you're not living for the success, you're living for the Savior. And there's a, yeah. ver- there's a, there's a vast difference in the character of, the per- of, of Adam 2 as opposed to Adam 1. Yes. So you see this in the Bible with David. David was the most successful king in the Bible. He achieved peace from all the enemies. He conquered just about all the enemies. He established a cedar palace. He was, uh, in, in um, 2 Samuel 4, it says he became greater and greater. They sang songs about him. I mean, this is your Steve Jobs, your whoever you want to put. Like, he's done it all. And then he kicks back and says, now I need to build a palace for God. You know, he, he, he achieved, he conquered, he accomplished a lot. And yet it's also the same person that says, you know, Give me a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord. There was a spiritual success, if you want to use that. There was a, there was a devotion to God that, that you know, there's a deep, profound, repentant humility in David uh, that was present 
alongside the success. And it's mixed and it's mingled and he's a sinner and he's repenting like us. So it's not to say that you can't have a measure of career success or what the world might consider accomplishment, but there is something underneath all that for a Christian that if we're living for the cardinal virtues, uh, we're not living for that success. We're living for the Savior, and it's noticeable in the character and in, in what you do with your money and how you treat people in your business. It just it influences everything. Everyone knows about the successful jerk. It's like, well, this is what they were like behind closed doors, mm-hmm. but look at all the stuff that they did that we buy. You know, and then there's the stories of the humble CEO, you know, that, that served the people in his company, you mm-hmm. know, that gave raises to people that, you know, that, you know, so. Yeah. What you're saying really rings true. In September of 2019, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I thought I was having a heart attack and I thought I was going to die that night. And mm. the truth be told, I kind of wanted to. Mm. And it just seemed clear to me in the waiting room that like, but one thing that really stood out to me is that you are going to be remembered by the sum total of the little moments of life and like who and what you loved, mm. not your accomplishments. You know, that's, those are things that you are known for now. Yes. But after you die, it's, I don't even know my great grandparents' names. You know what I mean? I don't even know if they were successful or not air quotes on in, yeah. you know, in financial terms. <clears throat> I'll tell you this, my, my grandfather on the lap side, um, not a super wealthy man at all, but, uh, man, like I'm going to remember him. Like he was a, he was a strong man of God, Mm. faithful, you know? Um, and he lived by cardinal, uh, virtues and values. And, uh, that, that, um, that leaves a legacy for sure. So what you're saying rings true. And in kind of that moment of truth, so to speak for, Mm -hmm. for me in in Mm -hmm. last year, that is, that seemed crystal clear to me in, in a way that was never more clear before. Um, so our good crisis. Now, what's what's behind that? Is it that crisis leads us into deeper faith, or helps us to kind of go beneath the surface a little bit and actually assess what w- what's going on, or or how we're acting in accordance to w- what we actually believe, or what's with the good crisis? Yeah, can, can I just say that you know your response to that heart attack was what we're talking about. You just gave us an illustration of humble suffering that yields virtue. Like you, you chose to to uh, let it be an instrument of providence to yield uh, aspirations to love people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you just gave us an illustration of everything we were just talking about. And um, may the Lord bless you in that, mm-hmm. make you flourish in that, and make others flourish as you, as you live that out and work yeah. that out. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And just to be clear, it wasn't a heart attack. That was the embarrassing thing. It was a panic attack. I've never had one before. haven't had one since. Uh, I thought I was above all of that, but no, I wasn't. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. I was going to die. None of us are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, our good crisis is double entendre. So it's saying um, there is a, um, a crisis of good, of virtue in our society, but it's also a good opportunity for the Christian to contribute to the moral flourishing of society. So there's a, there's a crisis of virtue, but it's a crisis for virtue. Does that make sense? Okay, what does double entendre mean? It's a double meaning. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so it, there's a double meaning in good crisis. Okay, got that now. My, my little mind can only think about one <laughs> thing at a time. All right, so there's a double meaning here, and explain that double meaning again, please. Well, as those pills you took last night, you like overworked your brain at yeah. 2 a.m. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll go so, with that. so 
a good crisis, it's, there's a, cri- a crisis of goodness, like we don't have enough of it, we don't have enough virtue in our society, but it's also a crisis for goodness that we can respond, we, we can make good out of the crisis that we're in. We mm-hmm. can embrace the suffering and produce virtue that causes ourselves and others to flourish. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so kind of a double meaning mm. there. What was what was the thing that stood out to you the most as you're researching and writing this book? Is it this aspect of humility being the gateway to all else, or is there other things that were especially meaningful to you? Well, that is a, that is a meaningful one. That's you know you never graduate from that one. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm it's poor in spirit. It should be a daily prayer request, right? <laughs> Lord, make me poor in spirit today, not reliant on myself or my power or my works, but on your greatness and on your grace. I mean, so that certainly is a one that has, will, will always be relevant and important to me, you know. Um, one of the things that surprised me was, blessed are the peacemakers, um, for they shall be called the sons of God. As I thought about peacemaking, and I thought about the character of a person who is a peacemaker, I started to do the mental Rolodex of people who I would consider to be peacemakers. Um, peacemakers are people who, who don't ignore conflict. They enter into conflict with redemptive hope. You know, So they're not looking to conquer in conflict, and they're not looking to cower and hide in conflict. Mm. They move towards conflict with the hope of reconciliation, with kind of full-blooded peace, not just kind of situational peace, but like, relational peace that comes from working through the hard stuff and clinging to Jesus. So I was thinking about, man, who are people that do that? And I really had a hard time pulling up names. And I, you know, I felt like I needed to improve in it. So that was one of the surprising things for me. And, you know, there were certainly a couple names that came to mind. And as I thought about it, it made sense that it was hard to think of people because of our cultural moment. So the secular beatitude that I laid over this one was uh, outrage, peacemakers in an age of outrage. There's kind of two poles in our society right now. There's the culture of outrage and the culture of fragility. And I'm pulling from uh, Luke Hanoff and Heith, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And um, they have made these observations that... There is a trend at universities, and now it's just all over Western culture, of a culture of outrage. So in universities now, if you invite a speaker that has a kind of often more conservative perspective on any given topic, there have been riots, there have been you know, walkouts, there have been calling for presidents to resign from their position simply because the ideas um, were what not only... Um, offensive to to the student body, but what they say is harmful. That the idea is harming you. That's a radical change. I mean, universities were established for the free exchange of differing ideas so that we can mature as persons. And now the university students are saying they don't want to be exposed to ideas that are different. They want their own ideas to be reinforced. And to consider an idea that's different is threatening... harmful to them. So the psyche has become that fragile. So it's no surprise that when you get on Twitter, it's a complete mess because everyone is living in this culture of either outrage or fragility. 
I'm outraged at what you think, and I'm fragile on the inside. So <clears throat> if that's kind of the zeitgeist, if that's the, if that's the waters that we're swimming in, you're either super fragile or you're super outraged, then it's very hard to be a peacemaker because everything is tribalized. Everything is right or left. Uh, there's no room for, there's no goal. The goal isn't peace. The goal is to be right. So, yeah, so this, this beatitude in particular was, was a challenge, you know, as I thought about the headwinds to being people who mm-hmm. are known for making peace. And um, it's something that I'm trying to grow in and trying to help our church grow in, you know, is, is uh, living in such a way that we are, our goal is, is the shalom of God in our relationships. Yes. And how do you, um, I am looking for the name of a documentary that I watched as you talk about the fragility that's going on and the, um, oh, shoot, it's not where I thought it would be. I can't think of the name of this documentary now. It was on, it was on Amazon. And it was about, it's about this topic about the walkouts and the riots and the violence really happening at colleges and universities in kind of reaction to freedom of speech issues. And Mm -hmm. uh, man, it was a good one. Um, I can't think of the name, but um, Andrew, do you mind just Googling and seeing what's on Amazon documentaries? And it had to do with... um, that one of the central kind of storylines, no, it wasn't that one. It was one of the central storylines was Evergreen University and what was that professor's name? Oh, boy. Yeah, just see what you can find with Evergreen University and, and documentary on Amazon around freedom of speech and college violence and those types of things. Um, so, but but that's sort of an extreme, like, you know, I haven't ever, ever, and probably won't speak at a college or university, those types of things. But, in, but, in, and most people listening to this won't either. But, but this, I feel like, also comes down to an everyday practical application in all of our lives. Like, we, all, a lot of us have social media and, or, or we are engaged in conversations that do kind of at a micro what some of these things are happening at, at university levels. So, how do you bring that, that peacemaker mentality in action at, a, at kind of an everyday level? Yeah. I think there's two uh, orientations when conflict or difference of opinion emerges. One is to value the relationship more than the person. The other is to value right, being right, more than the relationship. So this this is kind of the two ways that we tend to respond. Um, No matter what, I'm going to prove that I'm right. And whatever it costs you online or in our community, you're going to know that I'm right. And I'm going to ramrod this through. And I don't really care how you feel because I'm so in the right. I'm so on the side of right side of history. I'm so on, on board with justice. It doesn't really matter. The main thing that matters, you, you don't matter. What matters is that I get this across. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the kind of outrage, you know, side of things. The other approach is, I value the relationship more than the person. So I hear that you've gossiped about me and I end up talking to you about it and you say, you know what? You totally misunderstood. That wasn't gossip. But you know like it is. And you know that they gossip about other people. 
But because you want this relationship more than you love this person, you go, okay, not a big deal. And then they keep gossiping. That's the fragility one. Mm -hmm. You value what you get socially from this person more than you love the person. So much that you're unwilling to tell them the truth. So one is to conquer from a place of outrage. I want to be right. And the other is I value the relationship more than I love the person. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get to a place of peace, true flourishing, is to have someone else who is more right and someone who has a better offer in relationships than anyone around you. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the most righteous and the most deeply relating being in the universe. And he loves us so much uh, that he gave his very life and he has pledged all of his love to us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Like pours it all out right into the heart. This is the heart of God for us. If we are that loved in relationship by someone who is always right, Mm -hmm. we are freed to walk into that conflict and not conquer and say, I am right. We need to express our opinions, but we hold them kind of loosely. We're open to correction, but we also don't avoid the conflict because we're so well loved by someone who is right. We can brave the loss of social capital with this person Mm -hmm. to talk about things that are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which we are living in union with Christ, that we are enjoying this righteous, a deeply relating person, is the degree to which we will empowered to avoid these cultures of fragility and outrage and to make peace with others. Yeah, yes, yeah, man, that's... That's so timely and so encouraging. Is this book, John or uh, Lincoln? You over there, Lincoln? Can you get him some more water, please? Um, is this book primarily about? Okay, we have social and cultural kind of issues at large, but the solution starts with us, or is it also it starts with us and yet? let's implement some of these things at a, at a, at a level of society. I, I guess I, I'm not sure if that question is clear enough, but do you know what I'm getting after there? Yeah, I do. You know, it, it starts with the reader. It starts, thank you. It starts with the reader. It starts with the individual, but it works its way out because I think every beatitude has socially renewing power. So, mm-hmm. um, it, but, but yes, you're, you're going to be forced to kind of do an inventory of yourself but I also talk about how the Beatitudes make their way out into society. Um, <clears throat> so I think of a story of a gentleman who um, was taking a group to a prison and they were going to do some prison ministry, you know, praying for uh, those that were incarcerated and, you know, just spending time with them. He showed up to the prison with his group and they drove like an hour and a half to get there. And when they got there, the prison guard. Um, was kind of uh, just kind of a swaggering kind of guard and said, you know, you don't have the proper shoes on, you can't come in. Like it was, it was obvious that he was not welcoming to their cause. And so they had to drive an hour and a half away back to find some different shoes in order to come back. And the, the gentleman that was leading this group, you know, he was, he was offended in that moment. Um, 
by that person. But he said, reflecting on that moment, that he was convinced that he shouldn't judge someone by the madness of a single moment. Mm. And that humility compelled him not to judge people uh, on the madness of a single moment. And so uh, they went and got the shoes, they came back, and they and he tried to love that prison guard and respond. You know, many of us would be like up in arms, we'd be gossiping about it all the way there and back. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? But I was so struck by like humility opened the door of a prison for the incarcerated to be loved and served and counseled. Had he responded in pride and said, forget you, man, and we're not coming today, you know, or whatever, it, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And so it was humility that chose, that, that chose not to judge someone on the madness of a single moment. Mm-hmm. And man, wouldn't we love that from others? Yeah. I think of all the madness moments I've had. My life isn't the sum total of those. There's a lot of other things. And for a humble person to not just jump on me and judge me for that moment, uh, but to, to be more generous and gracious and, mm-hmm. and to give the benefit of that and love me, man, that changes things. Yeah. And it literally opened the door of a prison. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Thank you very much for talking to... Well, it's not that one either, Andrew. <laughs> um, I can't for the life of me, I can't think of what it was called. But yeah, it was definitely on Amazon and it was about... Um, you know, we might not be able to find it. If anyone's interested, they can email me, thecantletpodcast at gmail.com, and I'm sure I can find it and email them back. Um, all right. Thank you for talking through this book. I can't wait to read it. Great. And I'm not just saying that. No. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just say that, but I, I'm glad you brought it, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I also wanted to ask you about church in a post-pandemic age. This is something you're currently thinking mm. about. Might even write a book on. Yes. Okay. What are your thoughts on church in a post-pandemic age, or some of them? Well, they're a bit embryonic at this point, given that we're still in the pandemic age. You know, I'm still thinking and learning. and. But yeah, I, I'm trying to think about how has the digitally mediated church influenced us. I'm trying to think about how fear in relationships has influenced us. So there's an influence on Sunday gatherings and worship. It's influenced community. Um, as we talked about earlier, it's influenced mission, evangelism, mercy ministry, justice. Um, it's, it's influenced a lot of things about church. And so what does it look like to be the church in a pandemic age or a post-pandemic age? I don't know that's the best language, but it's what I'm kind of working with at the moment. Um, one of the things that I've been struck by is that during this time, we have become even more aggressive curators of our own lives and views. Because we're not um, in relationship with people in person, connecting, talking through different things, we're not out and about doing things uh, physically, but we're all at home working and we're on our screens collecting information more than we ever have. I think there is a, a curating of our views, whether it's a cultural issue, a theological perspective, a political view, there's this kind of hyper curation of everything, of our views on everything, that we are, 
This hypercuriation is producing an authority in our lives that rivals or trumps the authority of God and His Word. So I've listened to this person on this podcast, and that's how I view the church now. I've read all these articles, and this is the way politics really works. And I've done all this, and this is what justice, if you don't do justice this way, then you're, you're not doing it right. And so now I have this hyper-curated life that I've assembled. I have a pastiche of views that I've put together, and I haven't once consulted the scriptures or even approached the local church and the elders of the church to consider, is this reliable? Am I seeing things correctly? Like it's become the functional authority of my life. And um, that, uh, that is very challenging for the church because the church isn't a loose collection of individuals. It is the people of God. It is a family. And if all the family members no longer look to mom and dad for guidance and they all have their own kind of pet pastiche authorities, then there's not going to be much unity and there's going to be a ton of conflict um, because everyone's got basically their own functional inner God, you know, the golden statue that's calling all the shots. So, you know, church in a post benedict age, we're going to have to come back and make a case for benevolent, Christ-centered, biblical authority in the local church. We're going to have to help people recognize that uh, authority isn't always bad. Stoplights keep you safe, you know. Um, cops keep people slow on the road so there's not car crashes. Um, in fact, the conductor of an orchestra, if he was not in that place of authority, you could not have that beautiful symphonic music. Mm-hmm. You just have a lone violin in the wind. The, the authority can produce good and beautiful things, and we've got to retrieve that idea and convince the church of that and convince them that the authority of God and His Scriptures produces good and beautiful things of a degree and of a, of a uh, truth that your pastiche can't even hold a candle to. Now, there might be some overlap, and we want to affirm where there's some overlap. You know, all truth is God's truth, all beauty is God's beauty, all goodness is God's goodness. But the origin, the, uh, the authority uh, that determines what's good, true, and beautiful can't be my <laughs> cobbled together little finite, you know, 46 years of living on the right. world. I yeah. mean, it's just absurd. Yeah. yeah, I need an outside authority to tell me what's eternally good, true, and beautiful. Yes. So that's one of the challenges, I think, in and on the other side of this is for us to ha- revalue the Word of God as the reliable, authoritative source of what is good, true, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's one kind of chapter, if you will, one line of thinking that I'm I'm trying to work work through. Um, another thing I that think that might need to be the whole book. Yeah, it could I don't be. know. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Where did you pick up on? Not to interrupt you. I'll let you continue there. But where did you pick up on this? Because this is very true. This is happening in Nashville as well. Yeah. Just so you know. Yeah. This is this is something. And 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 not to say it wasn't happening prior, but it it got ramped up to a whole different level in 2020. Yes. So your read on this is extremely accurate. Um and it's it's concerning and it's a big issue. So did is this just something you were noticing? I mean, maybe this is also kind of born out of your your education in cultural anthropology, but you have a very good read on, on what's happening, I feel like, and uh, because it's it's definitely happening in Nashville. So how, how did you pick up on this? 
I mean, part of it is, you know, is that kind of missionary attentiveness to the culture that we're in, okay. you know? So, I mean, Austin has been a countercultural city for years, you know, it's, it's the, the progressive city in a conservative state. It's the, it's the hippie cowboy. It's the Willie Nelson. It's the keep Austin weird. It's a down with the man. So we've always been anti-authority. I mean, kind of, everyone has an authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, uh, so there's that kind of countercultural ethos in Austin. So I've been observing it from the very beginning. So it's just kind of see it in different places. Like if you go to a restaurant here, you're not going to get good service. If you go to Dallas, you're going to be treated like a king or a queen. In Dallas, it's like, it's over, it's over the top, you know, materialism and like, you know, consumer is king here. Uh, hey, I'm going to give you a little attitude cause you're not any better than me just cause I'm serving you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so you're not going to get great customer service most of the time because they just want to remind you, Hey, we both use the bathroom. Yeah. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's just, you know, here and I've been observing it influenced discipleship and, you know, decisions and all marriage and all that stuff for years. Um, so there's a kind of cultural attentiveness, but then there's also, I'm just a pastor, you know, I'm in the lives of people and I'm just seeing how they respond to race rights, I'm seeing how they respond to the need for justice, seeing how they respond to, you know, uh, deconversions in Christianity and, you know, uh, LGBTQ. I'm just, you know, I'm in the trenches enough and rubbing elbows with people enough to see this is kind of how people are living, Mm -hmm. you know, and the pandemic has accentuated this kind of curated lifestyle because we are in front of the screens more. So we're kind of inhaling information more to cobble together views more to find significant and be on the right side of history. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're spot on. Um, okay. You mentioned that being a chapter, which, um, that, yeah, that's, that's a, that's going to be a really solid chapter. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big issue. Um, it sounded like there were some other thoughts there. I cut you off on of what you're thinking through. Yeah. I've got like five or six kind of theses that I'm working through, you know, and, uh, they're not all kind of, I can't, recall them right with mm-hmm. right now with all but you know in a super articulate way but you know another one is like it is the pandemic has revealed the need for uh, relationships of profound trust and real truth telling mm. so we've kind of become um aspirational for for relationships in a way that we never have i want to gather with my church again i want to spend more time with my neighbors you know because i can't because I haven't had that in my life. Yes. Relationships are now so important. Yes. Ideal, ideologically, they're important. At the same time, we're distanced from that, and we're slow to come out of the deep freeze of pandemic lockdown. Even when there's opportunity to gather with masks and distance, we're gonna, I'm not going to do it this time. You know, we, we've kind of been frozen up in this kind of antisocial behavior, and yet we long for relationships where we can have deep conversations like this and we can build trust. But we also need to be told the truth in love because in our deep freeze, we become more fractured, polarized, distrusting, and um, we need to be told, we need the benevolent authority of God and the scriptures to reform us as we come out of the, as we thaw out. Mm-hmm. Part of what you're saying there is, uh, for, forgive me if I misread it, but part of what you're saying there, not the whole thing, but part of it is some people would believe that they can't get together 
even just one on one or a group of five or whatever, and that they can, you know, I'm not going to force them to get together. So, but there's this kind of perceived, um, there's this perceived lack of ability to get together, whether it's six or eight close friends. Um, and whether that's accurate or not, that's a separate thing. But there's a perceived lack of ability to get together. And during that perceived lack of ability to get together, there might be text messages going back and forth at a higher rate than normal, which is like, I so wish we could be together. I so wish I could see you when under normal circumstances, you wouldn't send that text message because everybody would be like, yeah, let's get together tonight or tomorrow. And you have this safety right now where it's like, it's perceived that you can't get together, and so it heightens your communication around, oh, I so wish I could see everyone because mm-hmm. you know you don't actually have to. You can say it, but you don't actually mm-hmm. have to. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, that's in there for sure. Okay. You can get social points for like wanting to be together without yeah. making the sacrifice <laughs> of having to be with around people. That's true. I, dude, that's, but that's also happening in Nashville, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's happening around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I can't wait to, um, might that be a year down the road, you think, or sooner? I'm talking to a publisher right now, and they've been very encouraging of the idea. Okay. So I just need to take the proper steps to put the proposal together, send it to them, and then we, pop, yeah, a book is always a year out from once it's been accepted. Okay. So we'll see. I'll be very honest with you. When you mentioned that you were thinking about writing a book on post-church in a post-pandemic age, the thought did occur to me, and I have to apologize for this, that, okay, here's a... A, a prolific writer and he's capitalizing on kind of a moment in time, <laughs> you know, to yeah. write another book. And now I see, no, you're the guy to write that book. Really? Well, that's kind of you. I know there's a lot of people who are more qualified and better writers, but, um, it, for me, it does come out of kind of local church concern. Most of mm-hmm. my writing is born out of concern for my own flock. And sometimes the trends that I see in the headwinds that they're facing are things that many people, many churches are facing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so hopefully this this will my church will get the first benefit hopefully of some of this and um, and then hopefully it's beneficial you know to, to other people you know the acquisitions person I was talking to about this book they 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 said to me it sounds like you're trying to develop a transcendent ecclesiology for our cultural moment something like that and I think they captured well what I want to do mm-hmm. is that. If you read this book, you're going to fall in love with the church again. You're going to be convinced of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the importance, the depth, the beauty, the reality of the church. Um, but it's also going to interface with the obstacles to being, you know, God's bride, God's people, you know. So, yeah, so, that, so it's like I don't want to just capitalize on a cultural moment, but, but I also don't want to ignore it. That's right. Yes, for sure. Well, that's all I can take, man. And I, mean, <laughs> I mean that in the best sort of way. Like, there are times where you connect with someone and uh, and it's like you have ministered to me in our time together and there's, there's truth, like, I, it, you're speaking the truth and you're a, a godly man and you're wise and articulate and it's um, it's meaningful, man. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, I've got lots to think about, and I feel like I was ministered to, and I hope the listeners feel the same way. I hope so too. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for saying that. You know, we'll we'll blame it on the Lord. Yeah, but it's been a joy to get to know you, and uh, appreciate the really thoughtful questions and yeah. stuff. So it's been a great conversation. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I do see the Lord working through you. Yeah, most certainly. 
Um, yeah. Well, God be praised and keep allowing him to work through you and keep writing books and keep preaching and teaching and speaking. How often do you preach? Um, Every Sunday? M- most Sundays. I mean, yeah, it, it depends on the year. But, okay. You know, I, I think it's important to have multiple voices so our elders preach. Um, some of our staff preach. This Sunday I'm not preaching. Okay. Um, Austin Davidson, our liturgy and, and worship guy, is preaching. Um, so that, you know, freed up some time to get to sit down with you today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've enjoyed it. Yeah, well, there's a profoundness. That was the other adjective I wanted to point out. There's a profoundness to how I have at least perceived you this morning. And I suspect other people have perceived that from you as well. Um, well, thank you so. for the encouraging words. You know, sometimes we blow those off, and I think it's important that we receive encouraging words. Mm-hmm. And so I receive it, and I yeah. am encouraged. Yeah. And I think I, I really genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, you should it. be. Yeah. Jonathan Dodson, thanks <laughs> for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks, appreciate brother. it. Thank yeah. you.